morning. The reading this morning is from Mark uh, chapter 6, beginning at verse 14. There are Bibles um, on the shelves if you want, and if you're using one of the church Bibles, we're on page 1008. Mark chapter 6, verse 14. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. And still others claimed, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a dish. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths, and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a dish. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks so much, Mike. It's so wonderful to see you all. If we haven't met, my name is Jo, and I am the curate here at P's and G's. And um, if you haven't been here for the last couple of weeks, then you will have missed out because we've had some really good talks. We've had um, a really good vision and strategy announcement. We have like, we now know what's you know the plan for the next couple of years. That was from Dave. That was Brill. And then Libby last week, she was awesome. She was giving us a chance to really think about how we can um, engage. It was a call to action for us to pray, to serve, and then to give to the church. So obviously, um, you know, when I came to my passage, what should um, come next logically is a gory story about power, sex, and death. Yay! <laughs> Thanks so much, Dave. <laughs> 
Now, you might be aware that quite a lot of start, sermons start with us, um, you know, using a personal example of our lives, just to, you know, help you guys to engage with the story, make it relevant. Um, so, obviously, I did do some soul searching. Um, I racked my brains, and I did try to find a relevant story from my own life. But, unfortunately, or I would probably say fortunately, um, my life does not read like an episode of Game of Thrones. So I couldn't think of anything, but it did remind me of somebody else's life story. Uh, you may be familiar with Henry VIII. Mm, yeah. So King Henry VIII was obviously a king. So there's the power dynamic. He was a king in the 16th century, and uh, he was very, very keen to have a male heir. So he ended up having six wives. Um, and because of this desire to have a male heir, and they were just, you know, repeatedly not able to produce one for him, because obviously it was their fault. Um, that's a little jab, sorry. Um, you may recall the old adage, divorce beheaded died, divorce beheaded survived. Do you remember that? Did anybody else learn that in school? So, he actually disposed of his wives one after the other, and two, uh, Paul Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard were both accused of committing adultery, sex, that's the sex dynamic, and then they were sentenced to death, that's right, by beheading. So actually, from Mark's gospel, you know, our story, it's not actually that far-fetched, right? BC, in our story, there are these three dynamics too. There is the power dynamic, because Herod is in charge. He is the ruler of Galilee. He is called a king, and he was power-hungry. And in these verses, we see him rubbing shoulders with the top brass. He invited all of the key people to his birthday bash. And although it sounds like he has a lot of power, because Mark calls him a king, and also after um, Herodias's daughter, does her very extraordinary dance for him, he promises her that he could have, she could have anything up to half of his kingdom, he's actually probably exaggerating what he can do. He's actually more like middle management. And so when, Herod's, uh, when this Herodias' daughter asks for John's head on a platter, a very beautiful detail that she liked to add, Herod just couldn't look weak. He couldn't lose face in front of these dignitaries. And so really, no matter what he thought, it said there he was greatly distressed about this whole thing. He had to, he felt, um, maintain this illusion of power and strength. And so he chose to care more about what others thought. He wanted to, see, to be seen in a certain light rather than stick to his own convictions. So Herod seeks power and prioritizes it over truth. And as a result, John lost his head. So the second part, the sex dynamic. Goodness, let's talk about some sex on a Sunday morning. That's what we want. But actually, it's quite interesting because Herod had married his brother's wife, Herodias, otherwise known as the evil mastermind behind the whole thing. We find out in verse 18 that John had actually confronted them about the unlawfulness of their marriage. I won't go into the details because, frankly, 
it's very confusing. Um, and frankly, we'd be here forever. Um, but you just need to know that the royal family here were just very incestuous. There were lots of intermingling and marriage. Um, and so, as a summary, um, and also they're all called Herod, so it gets very, very confusing. Um, this King Herod um, was um, married to um, Herodias, but Herodias had been married to his half-brother Philip previously. And also, um, Herod Antipas, so our Herod in our story, was also her uncle. Very messy situation. So actually, it makes much more sense when you understand that, that John the Baptist was calling them to repent. He was saying to them, this is not right in the eyes of the Lord. And if you remember back in chapter one, where we really meet John the Baptist, that was all he was talking about was repentance, come back to God, make yourself prepared because the kingdom of God is near. That was his message. You've got to prepare for Jesus. So although they were in a position of power over John, royalty didn't get any special treatment. And they were also being held to the same standard as everybody else. And so finally, and sadly, there is obviously the element of death in our story. Because poor John the Baptist loses his head and he dies. But John dies because of a weak king and a bitter wife. Herodias was so angry that John had challenged her marriage to Herod and the legality of it that she held a grudge. She became so bitter that she wanted to kill John. And that is why Herod was imprisoned. Her uh, sorry, John was imprisoned. Herod actually imprisoned John to keep him safe from his own wife. Herod actually believed that John was a holy and righteous man. And he had this sort of love-hate relationship with John and his preaching. He was puzzled by it, but somehow he kept on listening. The problem is he didn't actually do anything. He never responded. He never repented. And because he was weak in his character and didn't stand up for what he was actually thinking or feeling or believing himself, John, an innocent who didn't deserve to die, ended up losing his head. But his death was not for nothing. Because not only is there power, sex, and death in our story, there is another player that I've not yet mentioned. And that is truth. At the heart of this message of John the Baptist was his transformed life, which always pointed to Jesus. He preached repentance to call people back to Jesus. So John doesn't want us to focus on his death, but to focus on his life. And all that he was doing was to focus on Jesus. The kingdom of God had come near in Jesus of Nazareth. 
So while John had been in prison, Jesus had been teaching and doing these amazing miracles, and he'd become really well known in the area. And he was creating quite a stir in Galilee. The disciples had also been sent out by Jesus, and they too were doing crazy things like healing people and preaching repentance, and people were coming to know God. And that's how Herod um, had heard about this stir that had been caused by Jesus. And the first few verses in our passage actually set a question for us to think about. And they ask this question over and over again. And the question is, who is Jesus? And they speculate, is it the Old Testament prophet Elijah? Is it another prophet of old? Is it John raised from the dead? And that's the first that we've heard that John even died. They were speculating about these people, and they were kind of using their references and the nature of the people that they understood and knew to try and categorize or understand Jesus. And this is how we get into the story of John being beheaded, because it's actually told in a sort of flashback moment. All we know so far is that John was in prison, and then suddenly he's dead or has come back. But no, Herod is the one also speculating about John the Baptist having been raised from the dead. He goes, gosh, am I going to be revisited by the guy that I killed? He starts asking himself this question. It's a bit like the ghost of Christmas past. But Jesus is not John. Remember back in chapter 1, John says that there is one who's going to come after me the one who I'm not even worthy to untie the shoes that he's wearing. John is called to go before Jesus, to make a way for him, to usher in the kingdom of God. And John's life and also his death foreshadows Jesus's life and death. The innocent and holy and righteous John and the perfect spotless Jesus. So the truth about who Jesus is really matters. What difference does knowing the truth about Jesus really make? Let's look at how the truth affected John's character. So we learn again from chapter one where we meet John that he's a really strange man. I mean, he came from the wilderness. He wore clothes made of camel hair. He ate really strange food. He didn't really have anything materially, but his call was to be prophetic, to stand out. And he did do that, we have to admit. He was being obedient to his calling. He was probably seen as the lowest of the low, and he had no power in society. But yet, he was a man of conviction He believed that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. He was firmly convinced of the kingdom of heaven and of Jesus' holiness. He wasn't half-hearted. He was all in. He lived out his faith consistently, even when the people around him opposed him or disagreed with him, even when it made him stand out. He was a confident, whole-life disciple. From the moment that John met Jesus. Do you remember the Christmas story where uh, 
in the womb, they met each other. Um, John dedicated his whole life to the call on his life to make a way for Jesus. Every area of his life was affected, where he lived, um, where he sleeps, where he eats, what he eats, what he wears, who he hangs out with, and who he speaks to. And it's out of this confidence in Jesus that he is able to speak with a boldness of spirit that is staggering and challenging. He spoke truth to power regardless of the potential consequences. So, and lastly, he was a man of integrity. John lived a life of integrity, living out his unusual calling without caving to what society would think was normal or appropriate or less offensive. He couldn't let sin go without confronting it. So he spoke up even against the powerful from a position of lowliness. He took great personal risk in doing so for the sake of telling the truth and drawing people to Jesus. The very fact that he had the guts to challenge the king about his own sex life is quite something. But following Jesus and accepting him as Lord had significant and dire consequences for John personally. He was beheaded. But for John, Jesus is worth following to the very end. As a consequence of his dedication to Jesus and his personal conviction and integrity and life of discipleship, he was thrown in prison, and because of Herodias's spite, that's why he was murdered. So what difference does following Jesus make to our lives? There may well be consequences. There may well be a cost to following Jesus. But consequences are interesting because they speak to the value of the thing. John paid for, his, uh, for the truth with his life because that's how much he valued the truth about Jesus. He chose to put himself in harm's way because he considered it good news that Jesus came. And it was too important not to share. His faith ran so deep and so securely that he trusted that he would have a future in heaven with Jesus. But what does that look like in our context? Does the truth of Jesus shine in our lives? Do we live with the same level of integrity when faced with challenges or confrontation? Is living for God worth any cost that we might pay? Jesus calls us to take up our cross and to follow him. He doesn't say, just sacrifice that job or, no, you can't have that car that you would quite like. No, he asks us for the highest possible commitment. He asks for our lives. And he goes further by saying in Luke that whoever doesn't pick up their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So, if we want to follow Jesus, right up front, we make a promise to him that we are going to give him everything. 
how many of us really think about what that means? Are we okay if following Jesus actually interrupts our plans and our lives? What do we do if any area of our lives get threatened as a result of being followers of Christ? Persecution at the level that John faced um, of losing his life is not actually something that we're very used to in the Western church. Persecution actually may look very different for us than it does for some others. However, that doesn't mean that the world isn't still hostile to the good news of Jesus. And actually, we're talking about it. I'm talking about it today because it is part of normal Christianity. Millions of Christians around the world suffer persecution and discrimination on a daily basis. And I wish this um, was a more impressive example, I have to say. But I worked in a big law firm down in London for many years. And I was trying to live out my Christian faith in that environment. And I was in charge of trying to pull together lots of different areas of the firm to work together on a specific project. But the very senior people I was dealing with were frankly not working well. They weren't playing well as children, let's say. Uh, There was a lot of backstabbing, a lot of um, very mean and aggressive behavior, and it just wasn't coming together. And at one point, I just was on a call with one of these um, senior partners, and I ended up feeling very convicted to say something, to challenge them on uh, the way that things were working. And so I was a bit sneaky. I quoted Lincoln, who was quoting scripture. See what I did there? But I basically said, um, look, you know, I just feel like the city, a city divided cannot stand, and that's what it feels like we're trying to do. If we keep working um, as we are, this is not going to come together. It's not going to do the job, um, and we need, we need to change. And I took a massive risk. That's what it felt like to me anyway. I took a massive risk that he was going to... Um, report me. I mean, it was a very Christian thing to say that I could actually get into a lot of trouble. I could maybe even lose my job. Um, So obviously I wasn't beheaded because I'm still here, but it was for me a risk. It was for me um, a, a test, I guess, in terms of how I was going to live out my Christian faith in that very difficult environment. And I'm pleased to say that he kind of did change his behavior and he did go, hmm, that's a good point. Who knew? (laughs) But I tell you that not to brag in any way at all, but just to say I wish I had more examples. That's maybe one. I wish I had more examples of living out a life of integrity and confidence in my faith in every area of my life. So I ask us this question, like how do we become confident and resilient disciples of integrity? I just was thinking about it, and I think if we were soldiers, we would train for battle. We would, um, we would work out. We would practice using our weapons. We would, we would engage with the process. And I think it's kind of a similar principle here. We need to train ourselves to become confident and resilient disciples of integrity. We need to work with God to grow. And so that 
That happens by spending time with God. It's so obvious when I say it now, right? But what does that look like in your week? How do you spend time with God? Spend time reading his word and absorbing it. Not just knowing it in our heads, but knowing it in our hearts. How do we worship? Because in worship, we're reordered, we are re-centered, we refocus on Jesus and things get um, a different perspective. Our confidence comes from trusting and knowing both in our head and our heart that God is who he says he is. We need to practice obedience. The more that we step out, the more that we, um, we see his goodness in various ways. Um, we see him in the midst of the storms that we face, which gives us confidence in him. And it builds our resilience for the things to come. So my challenge to us all is, why don't we all just live our lives and our faith out loud a little bit more? Let's have integrity. Let's not change the way that we behave at work versus the way that we behave at church. Let's follow Jesus all the way to the end, no matter what the cost. And that's not an easy thing to accept. That's not an easy thing to do. But let's encourage each other. Let's encourage each other to follow Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, you know our hearts. And I just pray now that you come, Lord, with your spirit and convict our hearts of where we have fallen down, where we have strayed from you, where we haven't stood up for you, where we haven't spoken your truth, where we haven't lived lives of integrity. Lord, we just take this moment to come before you, to repent and turn. And as we come to the table, as we come to communion, let this be the place that we recognize your truth and accept it. I pray, Lord God, that as a people following you, we will live our lives out loud, that we will live in confidence, that we will have words to speak, that we will be um, people of integrity in our everyday lives. Come, Lord God, and reign in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.